you believe we're already coming to the end of Season 2 of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics? This month, we're celebrating some queens and taking a look at some of our favorite fiction. So glad you're joining us, and let's get ready to shake up some history. Welcome, everyone, to our second episode of Focus on Fiction. I'm back with our creative director, Lindsay Lindstrom, and we are going to introduce you to a couple of books that we really enjoy. Historic fiction is one of both of our favorite things, and I hope yours as well. You'll recall last week we talked about Jane Austen novels, and this week we're going far afield to some different times and places. So I'm going to start by asking Lindsay to introduce us to her book and tell us what makes it a great read. So Lindsay, take it away. My book that I read is called The Crystal Cave by Mary Stewart. These books are a little bit older, um, and maybe I don't know how well-known they are, but um, it's newer to me. I'd never heard of them until this summer, but it was really good. It's a really good book. Um, It's the first in a trilogy. Really good. And the thing that I think is really interesting about this book is that the author based it off of the accounts of Arthur and Merlin in Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain. And as she even points out in her author's note, uh, she says that, you know, Jeffrey's name is to serious historians, Mud. Because basically, <laughs> if you've ever read it, um, History of the Kings of Britain is just kind of fantastical and seems highly unlikely that, you know, any of that really happened. Um, I think as people have done more research on, you know, the Dark Ages and um, King Arthur and all these other things, they kind of have figured out too that, oh, I, I don't think that that's at all true. And that maybe in fact, King Arthur himself did not really exist. The reason I think it's interesting that she based hers on, on his account is because I, th- I think his is the one that pretty much every Arthurian legend we know of is based on. And so it does lend her story like an air of authenticity because it's places and people and events that we're all familiar with because in one way or another, we've heard it all before, you know? The focus of the book is Merlin um, and it kind of starts with him as a young boy and then it follows him through up until the point of, um, you know, Arthur's conception and, and birth. So at least the first book does. The thing is really interesting is that for somebody who is, you know, this legendary wizard, she's made him very human. Um, And that, as a matter of fact, you know, a lot of his magic, um, not really magic at all in her book, you know, he has the gift of sight. So he's kind of like, prophesying about things. He can kind of see the future, but that's the most magical thing about him, right? He, he uses disguises. He knows multiple languages. He's really, really smart. He's an engineer. So that's how some of the other like more magical things kind of happen um, because he's really good at engineering and medicine. Um, and he does have the gift of sight. So he's, he's doing all these things that is kind of like I think we call it practical magic. You know, it's not real magic. It's just knowledge of the world. 
And that's really interesting to me because I think it it makes it feel like you can see how these people really could have existed, you know, how they really could have been real people or maybe even, you know, a couple of real people that got smushed into one or something and became legend, you know, and even in the book, he constantly is telling people, I'm not a magician, I'm not a magician. But then kind of he plays it up with the people that aren't close to him because it's a it's sort of like a means to an end. He realizes they believe in it. And so I can kind of get what I need for, you know, Uther or Arthur or whoever. So I just thought that was really interesting in seeing how, you know, she kind of made legend history. When you told me this is what you wanted to share, I was thinking that legend somehow just hangs on however it might have gotten started. And it probably was a couple of people together and some of the early versions of Arthur, he was a warrior. And then later he also became a king and, you know, all those kinds of things. But it had such resonance through different generations and different monarchies and different dynasties. And the way you describe that, where there's somebody making these, you know, practical magic or using engineering, that's just such an interesting way of placing that in time. So why do you think, having read that, that the legend of King Arthur and all that that represents, why do you think that has had such staying power because I think it really, you know, lasted through a lot of different dynasties. Um, you know, the Tudors used Arthur a lot and, and, you know, that was hundreds of years later. So why do you think it, it caught on so strongly? You know, in the book, she kind of does like talk about that they sort of unified Britain in their time, like during Merlin and Arthur's time, that was like the unification of Britain and that how, you know, this king would last in people's memories throughout all time. I think partially because of that, because it's like, wow, you know, that's like really, I think in people's minds and maybe in, you know, people like the Tudors' minds, sort of the beginning of Britain, you know, as as like a unified country, maybe. I don't, maybe that's part of it. Um, but then I also think, um, I think it was in another book, I read about the Tudors where they were saying that because he embodies the idea of true kingship. So I think that that might be part of it too, that it just is like, especially for the monarch that he kind of, he's like the example of a true and good king is and somebody that's kind of a hero and, you know, um, but then for just all of us, I mean, it's just a fascinating story, you know, to, and I think some of it is because of the like fantastical, because, you know, Merlin and the Lady of the Lake, it's almost hard not to like find some fascination, I think, with King Arthur. I wonder in some ways if the fact that it may not have been a real person, or at least we can't find any you know, there are no sort of parameters. You, it kind of, the legend kind of grows and incorporates other ideas. Um, so when you're thinking of an ideal king, it might mean one thing in 1100 and another thing in 1300 and another thing in 1700, you know? And so it's, it kind of morphs as necessary to come to that. Well, and I think too, he's a 
thinking that you can, yeah, you can kind of make him fit whatever your idea is. We, it's not like we know that much about him, right? Like who the real person was if he ever did exist. So you kind of can make him into whatever you want him to be. If you if you could sort of like in a sentence or so or a couple of sentences, just kind of what are the big highlights? Because it sounds like this could be a really fun read. So what would you say are the big highlights if someone were to get this? I think that for me, the highlight of it is that it tells a story we already know, like the legends of King Arthur and Merlin and all these people, but it tells them from a different perspective. It tells them from Merlin's perspective. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of the same events, but through a different lens. That's a really good answer. So it's a story we know through a different lens. And I think that's a really great I think that's a really great way of thinking about things. So yes, you may know the story already, but here's a different way of looking at the story and at Merlin and at the magic. And that can be really helpful. I think that's great. That's great. And I think making them, it makes them all seem like possible people. This thing we've associated as magic really could have existed. It, it, we would explain it differently in our time. This is kind of fun because even though we didn't coordinate, um, there's a little bit of magic in the book that I wanted to share. So it sounds like we're just magicians here, but um, maybe we're just drawn to the same things, which I think is probably true. Um, Lindsay and I've been friends for uh, basically her whole life. I'm much older, but I met her as a very young person, baby. Um, So I wanted to talk about a book uh, called The King's Witch by Tracy Borman. And um, anyone who listens knows that I am a huge fan of Tracy Borman's nonfiction, but she also writes fiction and she has this wonderful trilogy. I'm only going to talk about the first book. I guess trilogy is another theme that Lindsay and I both have going today. But the first book, um, The King's Witch, is the story um, of Frances, who is a young woman And the novel begins as Queen Elizabeth I is dying. And so it's all about in someone who's placed in the world where there's a change. There's a huge change from Queen Elizabeth of England to James VI of Scotland coming down to be James I of England. And so there's this shift in the gender of the monarch, which is a big deal. There is a shift in perspective because James had been living and governing in Scotland and things were very different in England and in London and Parliament had very different powers in England at this time. And so it was a very interesting time to be with someone from a different country now taking over your country. And it's also where you see happening to Elizabeth what she had feared her entire life, which was as she was dying, all of her courtiers were racing to Scotland to be with James, to make a good impression on him, and she was very much left behind. And so it begins in her final days, and Frances, who is the daughter of one of Elizabeth's favorite ladies-in-waiting, Helena Snackenberg, what a wonderful name, and that's a real person. And of course, Frances is also 
a real person, but we don't know very much about her. And so one of the things I love in this novel is that Tracy Borman takes the scaffolding of what we do know about the history, finds a really interesting character. We know she's the daughter of Helena Snackenberg. We know that um, she lived during this period of time. And so Tracy just fleshes out her character in this really wonderful and fascinating way. And I wanted to start by just reading the first part. It's from The Queen's Death. But I want you to just get a sense of this character of Francis. So I'm reading from this. This is Tracy Borman's words, not mine. Her fingers worked feverishly. Rosemary, Hartshorn, Rue. The familiar pungent aroma rose from the mortar as she ground the tiny sprigs together. A little oil for binding. The mixture glistened green and gold as she dripped it slowly from the pestle, testing the consistency. The chamber was somberly lit, with two candles flickering on sconces on either side of the queen's bed, and hardly more light coming through the draped window from the leaden sky beyond. Neither Francis's herbs nor the lavender strewn on the rush matting around the bed could disguise the sickly smell of decay. The queen's breath came rapid, rasping her chest, rising and falling in short, jerking movements. There could be little time. Frances hastened to her side and, without observing the usual ceremony, peeled back her mistress's gown, exposing her ragged, wasted chest. Crooked carcass, the Earl of Essex had scoffed. He had lived to regret it. She smoothed the oil over the queen's waxy skin, uttering a prayer as she did that it might take effect. Gradually, Elizabeth's breathing slowed, became more melodic, quieter. Her eyes fluttered open. Now, I don't want to spoil anything, but I love the way that begins. You get such a sense of Frances, first of all, that she is this very confident healer and that she has been using her skills and her knowledge to create mixtures, herbal mixtures that have been very helpful to the queen. And we learn a little bit more about her story and how successful she has been. But one of the changes from the death of Queen Elizabeth and the transition to King James is that while Elizabeth I, and again, this is historically known, was sort of interested in the occult, and she was quite close to one of her advisors, Sir John D., who dabbled in numerology and in that very wavy line at this time between science and magic. And some of the herbal remedies were considered almost magical. They weren't really sure why they worked, but they did. Queen Elizabeth was very interested in that. And so Francis had had a really positive experience through the Queen's reign. But James I was very suspicious of anything like that. He's the only monarch to have written a book about how to find and hunt and get rid of witches. And he was very concerned about anything related to the occult. He had this really puritanical approach to that. So on the one hand, his court was incredibly sort of corrupt, very sexually charged. So it was a real change from the way Elizabeth had tried to keep her court and courtiers sort of playing by the rules. And at the same time, within that court, he had this very narrow definition of what was acceptable. And 
anything that came even close to witchcraft was not acceptable in the court of King James. And so Frances is sort of left wondering, should she just go to her beloved home in the countryside? So she has this lovely home, her family has done very well, and she can just live quietly in the countryside and away from court. After the queen dies, she thinks, yeah, I'd better just have my life away from court. But of course, there's a sort of ambitious uncle who sees Francis as a way to make a name for himself, brings her back to court. And then you see um, the Cecil, Robert Cecil, who's the new Lord Chancellor of James, and you see some of the scheming that's going on at court. And Francis has to make a decision about whether or not she will continue to practice her healing. And as those around her, including some highly placed people, I don't want to give anything away, but let's just say a highly placed person in the royal family becomes ill and Francis believes she can help. But if she, you know, shares this knowledge and does things publicly, it could also get her into a lot of trouble. And so that's sort of the way the story begins, and it just thrusts us right into the court of the 17th century royal court with um, King James and Queen Anne and their children and family. And of course, the gunpowder plot we know is just around the corner. And so there's a lot going on at the time. It's a very dangerous time. And Francis um, makes a lot of decisions about who are the people she can really trust? And there's a particular young man that comes into her life and can she trust him? And it's just a really great, great story. Tracy Borman is a marvelous writer in her nonfiction. So it's probably no surprise that her fiction is just so readable and so wonderful as well. It's just easy to get lost in it. And I will say um, the Audible version is also quite marvelous. Uh, Unfortunately, Tracy doesn't read it herself, but they do have a really great reader. And the descriptions are really wonderful to listen to as well. So I highly recommend this book. It is true to history, but it explores possibilities where we don't know very much about these characters. And so it gives Francis this really wonderful um, voice in this really wonderful life. And we really don't know that much about her. So it's a really great way of doing that. And one of the things I really love is that as a young woman, as you know, Queen Elizabeth dies, and now we have a king on the throne and the court becomes very masculine again, Francis continues to be intelligent and strategic and of course, make mistakes, but do them in the best of ways. And really the kind of person I think we would all really like to know. And so I recommend this book um, very highly, The King's Witch by Tracy Borman. That is the first in the trilogy. And I really think once you read one, you'll read them all. So Lindsay, have you heard of these books and what have you heard? I have heard of them um, and thought they looked really interesting. So now after hearing your recommendation, I definitely will have to pick them up. I think they're really, really fun. And it's a fun way in both of the, in both of the books we've um, recommended. It's a fun way to learn about history. We, you know, state very clearly as do the authors that it's fiction 
in the case of The King's Witch, of course, it is a story told within a historic framework, but that historic framework is very carefully researched. Um, Tracy Borman is an exquisite researcher as well as an exquisite writer. And so you can rely on, she is using her imagination, but all of the historic data and all the facts are correct. And that's one of the things that makes historic fiction so fun that you have this framework of what really happened. And then you have these other characters living out these really fun lives. So those are our recommendations for this week. Now, I hope all of you out there have been thinking about some of your favorite fiction. And as we wrap up season two and get ready for season three, we will be incorporating more fiction into some of our discussions. So if there are some novels that you find really interesting that you would like to share with all of our listeners, let me know. I would love to have people come on, share some of their favorite historic fiction, tell us why you love it so much and think we should give it a read. And we can sort of start a bigger discussion in the world of fiction. I know some of you have reached out to me and we're hoping for some of that. And so we will be doing that. So thank you again, Lindsay, for joining me and sharing your book. Can you just remind us once more about the title and the author? Oh, yes. Um, It is called The Crystal Cave by Mary Stewart. All right. And that's the first book in a trilogy, right? Mm -hmm. All right. Mine, also the first book in a trilogy, is The King's Witch by Tracy Borman. And we hope you are having and continue to have a wonderful summer and have lots of fun reading books like these. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. As we wrap up season two, get ready for some summer fun and look ahead to season three. I'm so grateful to have you joining us. So let's keep shaking up history together.